Well, good morning. Good to be all together again this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, it'll also be on the screen, page 891. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. We are going to jump right in this morning because we have a lot to cover. I'm going to move also pretty quickly, unless you want me to preach for an hour, which I'm happy to do. Um, but maybe that would defeat the point of all coming back to one service. Uh, and so Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, go ahead and flip there. Uh, some really quick context for you. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, We've seen Jesus do some pretty neat things recently. I've been reading some of the more well-known stories of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus calm the waves and the wind as the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And then all the people in the region were kind of freaked out out of the power of this man named Jesus. And so they tell Jesus that him and his disciples have to leave. And so that's where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Here's what happens next. It says this, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. So again, they were on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus at this point in the Gospel of Mark had spent most of his time there. They crossed over to the eastern side. Uh, This is the Gentile non-Jewish area. If you remember, again, they had a crazy, almost shipwreck drowning experience. And so when the disciples and Jesus are told they have to leave to cross back over into the sea, you have to imagine the disciples are not very keen on this idea. Like we barely survived the first time and now we got to do this again. Uh, But we don't see that there's any problems. So they get back to the other side. Of course, there is already a crowd. His name has gone before him. People are around him trying to be healed. Uh, So all of these people hear that Jesus is back. A crowd is formed. And here's what happens next. Verse 22. It says, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So there is a large crowd. This man named Jarius comes, fights through the crowd, falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him, my daughter is dying. Can you please heal her? Now, a couple of things here for us to take note of. First, it says that Jarius was a synagogue leader. Now, what does that mean? Uh, He was not a rabbi. Uh, He was not a scribe. Uh, The ancient Jewish custom of the synagogues works a little bit differently than maybe churches do today when you typically have a pastor who spends most of their time at that church. How this would have worked is at this time, you had rabbis and scribes, and they would travel to various synagogues. And so what you would have is you would have these appointed synagogue leaders who lived in the town where the synagogue was, uh, and they would be in charge of organizing, maintaining, and running the synagogue. And so you would have locals run the synagogue, so on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, when the rabbis were there, they would then teach. And so this man is a, obviously a, re, a leader in the community, and he's well-respected because he is one of the synagogue leaders. Now, as a side note, it's just worth mentioning here, if you were with us a little bit ago in Mark chapter 3, we saw after another one of Jesus' healings uh, on the Sabbath day that it said the Pharisees were uh, intentionally trying to uh, team up with the Herodians, which were the governmental leaders at the time, because they wanted to kill Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, the synagogues were pretty much run by uh, the Pharisees, the Jewish tradition of the Pharisees. And so while Jairus himself obviously doesn't want to kill Jesus, it's just worth pointing out that his top leadership wants Jesus dead and that this man is trying to ask Jesus for help. 
And so what happens is Jesus agrees. And so you have all of these people, this massive, massive crowd is now following Jesus and Jairus and his disciples as they go to Jairus's house. And on the way to his house, something else happens. Verse 25 says, now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. And so again, another person with a problem. Again, this, the crowd has to be full of people with problems. Uh, Mark is highlighting another woman here who has a problem. Uh, she likely suffered from the me- medical term, uh, what's called a menstrual hemorrhage. So for 12 years, she is suffering from this bleeding, and it's causing her not just pain and discomfort, but it is also costing her a social ostracization. Uh, she, in other words, is like a leper in the sense that she is ceremonially unclean because she has a flow of blood that will not stop. Now, to be clear here, to be ceremonially unclean does not mean that you are in sin. It just means that there are very, something's happening to you that is causing you not to be able to go to the temple or to the synagogue because you are unclean. Again, it's also just worth noting, they, unlike today, uh, they don't have a lot of the sanitation and the medical experiences that we have. And so in ancient cultures, they would try to do everything to keep people from getting diseased or to sick. They're not sure how things spread. And so again, she would have been ostracized for this condition. In fact, Mark tells us here that nobody could help her. So not only is she, uh, un- no one can help her, she's also poor because she spent what little she had trying to get help and nothing could work. And so you can imagine the desperation of this woman. She has heard about Jesus. Uh, she has heard that he has come back and she's thinking, maybe my life won't be over if I can just get to him through this crowd. And so here's what happens, verse 27. Again, having heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, or more likely she thought, if I just touched his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Right? So again, she hears about Jesus like everybody else does. She joins in the crowd. You imagine she is trying to fight her way through, thinking, if I can just touch him, then I will be healed. Now, to be fair, we don't know what she believes about Jesus other than thinking that maybe he can actually heal her. Uh, this also was not an uncommon idea. And so in ancient culture, there was this idea that if it was a great military leader or the Roman emperor or somebody wise or somebody powerful, that if you can just touch them, you will somehow be blessed by just the physical proximity of being near them. So maybe their power, their financial blessing, whatever it might be, the thought was, if you can just touch them, you will get some sort of healing. And so again, she's thinking this with Jesus. Honestly, in our uh, rational, enlightened society, we're actually no different, right? Because what happens when a celebrity is spotted on the street? It's a tweet, Instagram, you're texting your friends. All of a sudden, there's all of these people, and it's like, I touched his shoulder. I'm never going to wash my hand again. This is amazing, right? We're going to do the same. I mean, just think that, right? That's what's happening here. Like a celebrity on there is just flooded with people. Everybody's trying to get to them, thinking maybe just by touching him, something good will happen. Now, fortunately for her, it works, right? She senses 12 years of pain and isolation can now be over. 
And so you can just imagine in that moment, I, I'm imagining here that they're going to walking to this house. There's a crowd of people. She fights everybody. She's touching him. She feels better instantly. She's probably standing there as the crowd is going, just in disbelief of how she feels. And she's thinking, I can't believe this happened. But then something happens that she likely did not want to happen. It says this in verse 30. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? So all these people, all these people touching him, we've seen in previous instances that he was literally about to be crushed by the crowd. He says, who touched my clothes? He wants to know. Now, to be fair, this is a ridiculous ask. Right, so this is not like there's 15 people walking. This is a mob of people. He's getting touched. Of course, he senses something happen. And so he essentially is stopping the crowd, wants to know who touched him. But in this instance, how in the world are you actually going to figure this out? In fact, this is what the disciples think. If you keep reading verse 31, here's the disciples' reaction to Jesus' question. It says, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? Right? The disciples essentially are saying that this is a ridiculous request by Jesus. You have all of these people, and you're trying to find a particular person. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody is touching you. Right? Now, again, if you put yourself in, this, in, this, in the shoes of this woman, you go from being healed to now you're terrified. Because you know, maybe not, no one else does, but you know he is probably talking about you, right? And you had no intention of being found out. You had no intention of people knowing you had a problem. Uh, you had no intention of people knowing that you were there, uh, especially since what she was doing was unlawful. She was ceremonially unclean. And so in that case, you were supposed to tell people, I'm unclean. You're not supposed to be in a large crowd. You're certainly not supposed to touch other people. And so what she's doing here is technically unlawful. And Jesus, and she's unclean when she touches, touches Jesus. So you have to imagine that she's absolutely terrified that Jesus is stopping everything, including going to heal a critically, a critically injured girl who's on her deathbed to try to find who touched him. But that's what Jesus does. Verse 32, it says this. But he, talking about Jesus, was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Right now, to be clear here, sometimes when we read these condensed accounts, we think things happen quicker than they do. Uh, so if you were here last week, you might have assumed that the healing of the demon-possessed man maybe happened in an hour. Uh, we're not sure. that There could have been a couple of days. Because what it says, if you remember from the text last week, it says that, that, that everybody, the story of what happened spread, spread throughout the region. And then a crowd of people told Jesus to leave. Uh, this here did not happen instantaneously. In fact, we know that because the Greek verb that we have translated here was looking also connotates the idea that he kept looking. So it wasn't like he stopped who did this and she comes like with her head hung low 10 seconds later. It might've taken a lot of work to silence the crowd, to get people to stop moving, to get people to back away from Jesus so he can figure out what is going on. But in the noise and the commotion, he will not keep going until he finds out what happened to him and who touched him. 
Again, we see here all the time, every single time that Jesus performs a miracle, he is not content with simply performing really cool signs and wonders. He always wants to encounter people. And he wants to encounter this person. And so eventually, who knows how long it is, she is probably scared to death. She comes with fear and trembling, falls before Jesus, and confesses all that she had been through and what she had done. Again, she's terrified. And look how Jesus responds, verse 34. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So what would be astonishingly to her, Jesus does not condemn her. He does not yell at her. He does not shame her. He does not embarrass her. He refers to her compassionately and assures her that her faith in him, her willingness to put herself out there, no matter what anyone else might think, will say, has healed her and has saved her. So uh, not some random magic, uh, not some superstition, but faith in him and willing to seek out Jesus has healed her and made her well. Now, I think that this is helpful for us to know when you read this story, because here's how it is for many of us, right? There are various reasons why you, why you and I uh, go and go to pursue Jesus. It could be something bad happened to you. Uh, it could be you made a series of bad decisions, so you're ashamed. There's all these guilt reasons that we have to seek after God. You could be here today because you have questions, something, you did something wrong, you're just trying to make God, you know, appease God so he doesn't get angry. There's all these reasons why we pursue Jesus. And what we see in this text and throughout the New Testament is this, that Jesus welcomes you no matter how you approach him. So regardless of your reasoning, Jesus will not reject you. Uh, it's why we say here often at New City Church that Jesus always, not sometimes, always responds to repentance with grace. And so if you pursue God because you need help, if you're pursuing God out of sheer desperation, if you're pursuing God because you blew it, uh, if you're pursuing God because something happened to you, whatever the reason, he never, ever despises us for coming to him. Even if you should, he's never like, he's never saying, what took you so long? He's never saying, well, no, because you've done all these things and now you want, that never happens. Regardless of your reasoning for coming to Jesus, he will always welcome you. Always. It kind of makes me think, it's not the perfect analogy, but like, I think all of us have been in situations in our life where we should have asked for help sooner and then we didn't for various reasons. So, especially if you're a man, like, come on now. Um, and so this happens to me uh, when I go to the grocery store every, every once in a while. It's a rare occasion. Like Christina wants me to get something to pick something up. And so I go and, you know, I, I don't know where it is. Like unless it's like milk or something super obvious that I've got, I don't know where anything is. And so I, I go to the grocery store. I walk around like the two or three aisles that it's supposed to be. And of course, I don't find it. And so I call Christina and ask her where it is. And she's like, well, I'm not there. Uh, so I can't tell you, but it should be in this aisle or this aisle. And then she always says, why don't you ask somebody to help you? And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll do that. Whatever. So we hang up. And then what do I do? I do what any uh, self-respecting human being would do. I proceed to walk up and down every single aisle of the grocery store. Try, I'm in the frozen section looking for some soup. Why? Because like the genetic modified, you know, you know, who knows who, I don't know what goes into soup anymore. Maybe it is in the freezer. I don't know. So I walk around the entire grocery store. And then after I still don't find it, what happens? There's a 50-50 chance. I ask somebody for help 
Or I just leave because I say, well, clearly it's not here because I can't find it, right? So I just, I lose, I miss out because I didn't just ask somebody for help. And so again, whatever you walked in here with this morning, you need to know that Jesus always welcomes you regardless of your reasoning. He does not hold it against you. He is not bitter. He's always saying, I love you and you are welcomed here. This woman is terrified and he does not turn her away. He welcomes her. And so it is for you and for me. And so that's what we see here. Now, again, as we go back into this text, remember where we are, right? We've been talking about this woman, but what happened initially? What happened initially? That Jesus was on the way to Jarius's house to heal his daughter who is about to die. So now imagine being Jarius in this situation. You're mad and you're angry and you're desperate and you don't know why Jesus is stopping like, why can't he heal your daughter and then deal with this woman? Like, what is going on here? In fact, if we're being honest, uh, if this was like a modern day story, imagine uh, two people arriving at the hospital at the same time. Uh, one person is in critical condition and one person has a chronic condition. Uh, if Jesus were the doctor in this situation, he could literally be sued for malpractice. Because he is healing the person who can just wait a couple more hours. I mean, it's been 12 years. It's not going to hurt you. And he doesn't do that. He heals the person with a chronic condition at the expense of the person with a critical condition. So imagine Jarius, as he, again, who knows how long this took? He's scared, he's upset, he's angry, he doesn't understand why they're stopping. And so here's what happens next, starting in verse 35. Jesus heals the woman, and then it says this. While he was still speaking, so while Jesus is talking to this woman, People came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Verse 36, when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. Or don't be afraid, only trust. So what's happening? Again, Jesus is speaking to this woman. Uh, Jairus is informed that his daughter has died and that he should leave Jesus alone because now that she's dead, what is he going to do about it, right? And then it says that Jesus overhears this and, and then he responds. Now, uh, the Greek word that's translated here as overhear is the Greek word uh, parakoyuin. Now, parakoyuin can mean one of three things and it's relevant for this story. Uh, it could mean uh, that you overhear something not intended for you. So you're at the coffee shop, someone's on an annoying Zoom coffee, uh, business call, and it's like, why are you doing this here? Like, you have to talk so loud, right? And you're trying to talk to your friend. And so you over, you're not trying to listen, you just overhear. So that's what it can mean. Uh, this word can also mean that you pay no attention or ignore. So maybe somebody is talking to you, but your head's in the clouds, you're thinking about something else, you're on your phone, like you're not paying it, you're not present. So it could mean that somebody is saying something that they want you to hear, but you're just not listening. Or the third distinct meaning is it could mean that you refuse to listen or you discount the truth of something. So somebody tells you something and you just disagree and you think they're wrong, right? You, you discount the truth of what is being said. Interestingly enough, all three of these meanings can apply to what happens here, right? Jesus overhears something not intended for him. He kind of ignores the comment because he's going to go, they're going to go to her house anyway. And in fact, he says it's wrong. He refuses to listen to the truth of that statement. Because he says, don't, uh, what, is he, what does he say? He says, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. 
And so, and I, I say that, before we continue, I just, I want to make this point as we read this text, because you see this all over the stories of Jesus, and you also see it here, where Jesus stopping not to heal the critical person, to heal the chronic person. Here's what we see happening here, just as a side note, that Jesus was never busy. Jesus was never busy. But you cannot read uh, the Gospels and see a man who is busy, at least by the modern definition of it. Like literally the impending death of somebody does not stop Jesus from encountering someone right in front of him. Now, I hear you. You're probably thinking, yeah, but he's Jesus. Fine. I get that. But all over the Gospels, you see a man who has more important things to do than any of us ever will. And yet he's never busy. He's never, he's never rushed. He is never in a hurry. This is what you see. Uh, and so again, what we see happening here, I just want to point that out because for you and for me, as we deal with a highly uh, uh, distracted world, we've got all these things going on, sometimes we can assume that busyness equals faithfulness. And what we need to understand is that having a lot going on or being busy, while not necessarily sinful, is not, is not by definition faithful. So you can have a lot going on and not do anything wrong. But simply by the fact that you have a lot going on, it doesn't mean you're being faithful to what God has actually asked you to do. Because if we're going to be apprentices of Jesus in the way of Jesus, we ought to consider the way he lived and he did not live a busy life. And so because Jesus was never busy, the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is where are you blaming busyness for your lack of faithfulness, right? In your life, where are you blaming? Well, I've just got a lot going on. I, I got a lot on my plate. I haven't organized. My, like, where are you not doing what God has asked you to do that you know he's asked you to do because you just have too much going on and you're not prioritizing how you are spending your time. Again, you can have a lot going on and not be in sin at all. But if you have a lot going on, it doesn't actually mean you're being faithful. So what are the things that God is inviting you into that you're missing out on, that I'm missing out on? Because we're being busy, right? If Jesus was busy, this story would not unfold the way that we were seeing, happen, we were seeing it happened here. So he slows down. He helps this woman to what we assume is the detriment of this man because he was not busy. And then here's what happens next. We'll pick up the story in verse 37. So again, he tells Jairus not to be afraid, to, simply, to continue to trust him. And then it says this. He, talking about Jesus, did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother, uh, which are basically his three closest disciples. And so he tells everyone else to stay here. He takes his three closest disciples. Verse 38. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. So again, Jesus continues now to the house of Jairus, takes his closest disciples. When they get there, he tells people to go outside, and he basically assures everybody that what they are doing is pointless. They are wailing and weeping over a girl that is dead, and yet Jesus says he is, she is not dead, she is asleep, and so they mock him. Now, to be absolutely clear here, this girl is dead. Like, she is dead, and everybody knows she is dead, right? For most of all of human history, and even in most parts of the world, except more developed countries, uh, you saw death all the time, right? You died in the ancient world one of two ways, either out at some tragic unforeseen accident or at your house. 
from an illness or from old age. There are no hospitals. There is nowhere else you go. You saw death all the time. Not only that, it says there were mourners there. And so there's this ancient tradition in Judaism, uh, especially if you had money, but even if you didn't, you would essentially hire mourners to come to the funeral uh, and for like a seven-day period to honor the person that was dead. Uh, and so these people who were there to kind of lead this procession, if you will, uh, this celebration and this, um, uh, the weeping over the loss of the life, they saw death all the time. It's like you going up to a funeral home director or a mortician and saying, that person's not dead. Like, they know death when they see it. So they mock Jesus for saying that she is not dead. But for Jesus, what we see happening here, it seems as if Jesus is saying that death for him is no more problem than an illness. Right? This might be a big deal to Jairus and his associates and his friends and his family thinking, well, Jesus could heal an illness, but he can't heal death. And Jesus seems to be saying that it's actually no more difficult for him. Now, that being said, again, think of the last three things Mark has told us about. He told us that Jesus can calm the wind and the waves, which means he can uh, control all of creation, which in the ancient world was a big deal to control water. Uh, last week, we saw that he has power over evil. And now we seem to be seeing that Jesus has power over death. What Mark is screaming at us in these stories is the reality that there is nothing that Jesus does not have power over. The wind and the waves, all of creation, the demons, all evil, Death itself, it cannot stop him. That is what Mark is showing us. And in fact, Jesus is incurring Jarius here, right? Because Jarius and the people, again, they had faith for healing, but not resurrection, right? They, they, you could do this, but clearly you cannot do this. And I can't help as I read this story to reflect on my life, your life, our lives, and, and our life, that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you were to grant, well, if God does exist intellectually, well, you would say, well, he has power over everything, right? I mean, because he creates everything. But I just wonder functionally or practically that sometimes we don't see God do big things because we don't ask. Like, we know he can, but we're not sure he will, or he wants to, or he cares, and so we don't ask. Now, of course, asking God to do big things does not guarantee that those big things will happen. But, I mean, think about it in your own life. How often have you, got, have you prayed consistently over time, not like just once or twice, and then you kind of get over it, for God to move in powerful ways? Now, as I say that, I know it's hard, because sometimes you do pray for a very long time for big things that do not happen. And that's discouraging, and it's hard, and on this side of heaven, we don't know why. But I just, I, I can't help but wonder in our own lives how much we miss out on because we don't ask God for big things. It kind of makes me think of my kids. We've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And so they ask for a lot of stuff because kids ask for a lot of stuff. And my kids get a lot more things than they would have otherwise because they ask for it. Like almost every day now, Roman, our three-year-old, comes up to me at some point and says, Dada, can you play cars with me? All the time, right? Now, I don't always play cars with him when he asks. But I do sometimes. And if he, but if he had never asked, it would not have happened. Right? My kids get a lot of stuff that they'd asked for where if they hadn't asked, they wouldn't even have gotten. And I wonder if that's true for us because we forget that Mark is showing us that Jesus has power over all things, even death. And so here's what happens next. Verse 41. <clears throat> it says this. Then he took the child by hand and said to her, Talatia kawu, which is translated Little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, what's happening here is Jesus goes into the room with the disciples and with the, his close disciples and with his father and mother of the daughter. 
And remember, he's already been touched by an unclean person, this woman, and now he's voluntarily touching another unclean person, a dead body, and he says to her, Telatia Kawum. Now, what does that mean? Now, the translation is literally in the text in verse 41, but I want to explain to you how it was actually understood. So, uh, Telatia means a little girl. That's what it literally means, but it connotes more than that. So, Jesus is not just like saying a factual statement. Uh, what it really connotes is this idea, it's a, it's a word of endearment. It's like saying honey or like saying darling. This is how Jesus refers to this girl. And then it says kawum, which literally means to get up or rise. Now, it does not mean be resurrected. Right? In this context, you, it kind of sounds like Jesus saying, hey, little girl, come back to life. That's not what, it's say, what he's saying here. The, the, maybe a modern, I don't know, paraphrase of what's happening here is like, imagine you waking up a child on a sunny Saturday morning. What Jesus is doing is he's taking this little girl by the hand and saying to her, honey, it is time to get up. That is what he is saying. Again, showing his power over death and darkness. And then here's what happens next. Verse 42. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he, being Jesus, gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So what happens here is that Jesus heals her. Again, people are astounded because she is actually dead. And we see an important note that the woman that Jesus healed was sick for 12 years and that this girl had been alive for 12 years. And like he has done oftentimes, except last week because he was in a Gentile territory, he tells them to tell nobody what he has done. Again, the main reason that Jesus does this, at least in the first part of his ministry, is because he doesn't want people to misunderstand what he is doing and what he is trying to accomplish. He's not here to simply be a miracle worker. He is here to initiate the kingdom of God and to invite people in. And he shows his power again. And so what I want to do as I close this text this morning is I just want to point out what's happening in this story, again, that we might miss on a surface level reading. Because what is happening in this text is Jesus is confronted by Two people, Jairus and a woman. Now, Jairus and this woman could not be more polar opposite in every way. All right, for Jairus, you have someone who's a male. You have someone who is a respected community leader. Though he shows deference to Jesus, obviously, because he knows who Jesus is, he has the ability to come to Jesus face to face through the crowd and somehow expects Jesus to listen to him over everybody else. He's a respected community leader. He is likely somewhat wealthy because as, a, as a, a synagogue leader, he probably has the respect of the community. He already has mourners at his house so he can pay for them. He's likely somewhat wealthy. And of course, he is religious because he's highly involved with the synagogue. So that's one guy. And on the other hand, you have a woman, right? She's a woman. She's also nameless. We're not told her name. She is ceremonially unclean. She has no money. She is a social outcast. In fact, check this out. Her issue of blood makes her unfit to enter the synagogue that Jairus likely leads. Because if they live in the same community, which they likely do, the synagogue she is supposed to go to, she can't go into. And who is in charge of it? Jairus. Of course, she has no honor in the community. And so unlike Jairus, who can get in front of the crowd and get Jesus to listen to him, she has to approach Jesus secretly and from behind. 
Right? In fact, all of this, the crowd would likely be annoyed for two reasons that Jesus is stopping. One, she's stopping for, he's stopping for this woman over Jairus, who is the respected leader in the community. And two, she has a chronic condition, and Jairus' daughter is about to die. Nobody would like what's going on here. You would not like it. I would not like it. And yet, Jairus and this unnamed woman have something in common. They've both heard about Jesus, and they're both desperate. No matter what, where they have, no matter their status, they have heard about Jesus and they are desperate. And in fact, the cool thing about all of this is that when Jairus is told that his daughter is dead and he is told to leave Jesus alone, Jesus overhears this as he is talking to this woman and he tells Jairus that, she's, that, that he needs to still believe and have faith and trust in him. The question we should ask is have faith like who? The answer is the woman standing right in front of him. It's like he's saying, Jairus and all these people, you guys need to be more like her. And so while there's a lot that you could take away from this passage, I want to close with one final thing, and that's this. That Jesus responds to our faith, not our status. Jesus responds to our faith and our trust and our desire to follow him, not our status. And our status can be a lot of various things. It could be wealth. Uh, it could be influence, uh, it could be your gender, uh, it could be whatever, how, whatever identity you cling yourself to, uh, it could be your sin, you feel like you're a sinner and you're shameful. All of these reasons that might stop us from going to Jesus makes no difference. He doesn't respond to you and who you are and what you've done or what's been done to you. He resp- responds to your trust in him. Remember, Jarius has no advantage just because he's male and just because he's respected and just because he's religious and just because he has a lot of influence and just because he has a lot of money. The only thing that matters in this story is a willingness to follow and trust Jesus and to ask him and to plead for him for help and healing. And is this, if this is not a picture of the gospel, that what did Jesus do? He came to do for us what nobody could do for themselves, to redeem, to rescue, to love, to extend grace, to extend mercy. That if you are this, if you are Jairus and you feel like you have it all together and you have all the wealth and you have all the respect, it does not matter if you do not have Jesus. And if you feel like you are more like this woman who, have, who has blown it, who has made terrible decisions or has, has terrible things happen to you, it does not matter as long as you have Jesus. That God came in the form of a man to do for you and for me what we cannot do for ourselves. And if you do not have Jesus, you do not have God. That's what's happening here. Mark is showing us that Jesus is God in the flesh who has come. That if you do not accept and follow and trust in the mercy and Jesus' perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, you will not be able to save yourself. That Jesus on the cross defeated sin and death on our behalf. He showed us and displayed his power over evil and victory. And that one day in his kingdom, there will be no more lying, death, cheating, pain, or hurt anymore. Not because of you, but because of him. And that all of us, no matter what we have walked in here with this week, no matter what you might have done last night, Jesus will respond to you with grace and mercy, not because of you, but because of him.